0: Bibles to John chapter 4. We covered a lot of John chapter 4 in the last two Sunday mornings, so if you missed one of those and you want to keep your education complete, make sure you get a tape or a CD of those. But chapter 4 in the beginning, it starts out by saying, therefore... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. A few interesting things just in these few verses: Jesus was starting to get popular. He was down there in in uh, the area surrounding Jerusalem, down in the south, and. And, of course, he was born down there in Bethlehem near Jerusalem. And, and as they were there at the Jordan River baptizing, he was drawing a bigger crowd than John the Baptist. And it's interesting to me that because of that, it's the very reason given why he left. That fascinates me. It encourages me as well, though, about Jesus, how he he had an agenda that was just to do what God wanted him to do. And he wasn't going to let what was popular dictate what he was going to do. He wasn't going to say, well, things are hot here. This is a great look. I'm more popular than John. He avoided the comparison. He actually moved his ministry away on the basis of the fact that he didn't come to just be popular. He didn't come to to try to be the next John the Baptist. It bothered him in that sense, and so he decided to move out to another area. We also know that he wasn't responded to, we find out later, uh, there, even though he did all kinds of miracles, but there were a lot of people who were coming. He was garnering a lot of attention, but Jesus wasn't just into building a big ministry or attracting the crowds. He, He wanted to do what the Father told him to do, and so there are very few preachers who you would see, oh man, people are streaming in, it's time for me to leave. But that's the way Jesus was because he was so certain of what the Father was leading him to do. It's also interesting that though it says he was baptizing more than John, Jesus himself didn't baptize but his disciples. I wonder why Jesus didn't baptize. But it's interesting that Paul talks about the fact that he didn't baptize many people. He baptized a few. He couldn't even remember how many, but he didn't do a bunch of the baptizing. I'm not totally sure why Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing or why Paul wasn't primarily doing the baptizing. Um, I'm sure it wasn't because they didn't want to get wet. Perhaps this context gives us a clue because of the fact that Jesus was concerned about becoming overly popular, becoming too much of a personality cult. And so You know, maybe, obviously, if you can sit there and, okay, there's several lines for the baptism. And here's the line for people to have Judas baptize them. Here's the line for Peter and for John and for Andrew and for Thaddeus. And, you know, and you're going, and here's Jesus' line. Let's just get in line and have Jesus baptize us. The thing about baptism isn't who does the baptizing, though. If it did, then, hey, everybody else get out of the water and let's have Jesus do it. But Jesus seems to have deliberately avoided that because it was the message that he had was a real simple message. And it wasn't about lining up on a personality. It was about a change that happens in your life. And so um, he ended up leaving after, after realizing that things were really cooking for him. Left Judea, that's down there in the south, the tribe of Judah. And he departed again toward Galilee, that's up in the north. On the way, right in the middle is Samaria, and that's where we have this encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. And we, we've covered this over the last uh, couple of Sundays pretty well, so I won't go into detail about it, but this fascinating discussion that Jesus had with the woman at the well about the nature of worship about what it means to worship in spirit and truth as opposed to going through the motions, as opposed to being in the right place at the right time. And it's a reminder to us that worship isn't about where you are. It isn't even about what you say or what you do. Worship is about your heart. It's about being in a place. In the Old Testament, they had all kinds of worship. And all of the worship had beautiful significance. And much of the worship, the, the music that was written by David and others was incredible. And yet, it got to the point time and time again in the history of Israel where God said, I'm sick of your worship. I don't want to hear it anymore. Because though you're worshiping me with your lips, your heart is far from me. And this is what God has always been interested in, is our hearts, how close we really are to Him. And so how important it is that as we worship in spirit and truth, we guard ourselves against just going through the motions and having a phony, hollow sort of um, worship that isn't substantial, that isn't true, that isn't truly spiritual. Jesus, after explaining all of this to her, said, told her that He's the Messiah, she she said, uh, you know, well, we've heard Messiah is going to come. And he said, I am, in the Greek, ego eimi, I am, the one who is talking to you. And so revealing himself in this way, after revealing some things about her that were embarrassing, she ran off and told the people in town. And, and remember, her message was, this guy told me the bad things that I've done. I'm convicted of my sins as a result of my contact with him. And that must have surprised a lot of people because here's a woman who had been married five times, was now living with a guy, a woman who wasn't on good terms with the women in the town and had known many of the men, no doubt, in a, in a wrong way. And yet here she is admitting her sin. She was probably the type of person to deny her sin as are so many people who are walking in the middle of it. And yet, here she is, a changed person. And so the people there of Samaria came rushing out to meet Jesus for themselves. And that's when Jesus looked at the crowd coming, moving through the canyons and said, look at this, the fields are white to harvest. And these great principles that he teaches us that we went over um, last Sunday about the nature of the fact that we're called to to reap the harvest. Some are called to sow and water and plant, and others are called to reap, and they're all the same. God rewards us the same. We all get to participate in that work of God in reaping in the harvest. And so many people there got saved in verse 42. They said to the woman, hey, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now in verse 43, after the two days, the people in Samaria had said, Jesus, hang around with us for a bit. We have a lot of questions. And so he stayed there for two days. And can you imagine spending two days with Jesus when you're a brand new Christian and there he is with you? What, a, what an experience that must have been. But he had places that God had called him to go. You know, He was on his way from, from the uh, south up to the north, up toward the Sea of Galilee. And so he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. This notion that somehow you ought to be able to minister to people who are most like you is so wrong. It's so different. It's the, it's the idea of church growth today the, this movement that teaches that you need homogeneous groupings. You need to get a lot of people who are just alike, put them together, and if they're a young contemporary crowd, you need to give them a young contemporary preacher. And if they're elderly people, they need someone with more a voice of maturity. If they're people who like a certain kind of music, that's what you give them. Uh, the idea that somehow that's how ministry takes place Jesus demonstrates here just with this simple statement, a prophet has no honor in his own country. The truth is there is a certain amount of effectiveness that only happens when you go to someone who's different than you are. There's a certain comfort level with people that you know, and you just take them for granted. If you're, if you're ministered to by people who are just like you, it's hard to have respect for them. Paul talking to Timothy said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conversation, the way you live your life, in charity, or love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Be an example. Even though you're young, obviously he's ministering to people who aren't so young, and he's saying if you're young, use that as a way to amaze them at what God has done in your life. For an older person, well, Paul talked about the fact that He became all things to all men that by all means he might win some. He adjusted for those he was talking to. But it's just, you ever wonder why it's so hard to minister to your own family? And I mean, there is certainly, I'm talking your immediate family, there's obviously, that's your primary ministry. But your relatives so often, the people who've known you since you were a kid, sometimes they'll just never respect you no matter what you do. Sometimes they'll just always look to you as someone who, you know, I remember that time when you, you know, stole my bike. I remember that time when you shoplifted at the store and got caught. I know you're no genius. I remember those B's and C's you were getting when you were in school. And there's this scorn that comes. Familiarity, it said, breeds contempt. And sometimes that's the case. And it's encouraging to me that it was even the case for Jesus. That when he went to his own, his own received him not. When he went to the place where he should have been most connected, yet in order for him to really hit his stride and find his effectiveness, he had to go to people who were different than he was, who came from a different area than he was, and, and there they received him gladly. It's one of the reasons why missions, foreign missions, are so important. Now, often I've heard people say, oh, why are you going on a miss- short-term missions trip? You aren't even witnessing all the time here. Well, there is something different that comes from going somewhere else. There's an appreciation and a respect. Now, I remember John Henry Cochran who came from, from uh, Scotland, uh, Ireland and, and uh, Tipperary. Is that in Ireland? I think so. And he came over to Calvary Costa Mesa and came on staff. And people really loved listening to that accent. When John Henry would pray, it was like, I want to record this. It was so wonderful because we're not used to that way of speaking. And as the Lord was calling him to go on and pastor, he ended up going up into Northern California. And I said, John Henry, have you ever thought about going back to Europe? And he said, when I'm over there, I sound like everyone else. They just take it for granted. When I'm here, they're kind of fascinated by the way I speak. He said, in the same way, Dave, if you went over to Ireland, they would be interested in the California culture. They'd be, they would be fascinated to listen to the way that you talk. And there just is a certain interest that's generated because of people being different. And that's why when we send missionaries to other places, sometimes they'll find out that they fit in better there than they, than they will even at home. It's even the case sometimes when, and a lot of times, and this isn't the case nearly all the time, but sometimes there are people who God calls to be missionaries who don't quite fit in here. They just, maybe they have some little idiosyncrasies or they're obnoxious in some way, and, and it's something that really restricts their effectiveness here at home. But they go into another culture, where the cultural sensitivity is different, the, the impressions from people are different, and, and those things that might stumble people who are very familiar with your culture, it doesn't, they just think that that must be the way Americans are, and, and, they, and they can work past it. And so oftentimes you'll find people who become much more effective on the mission field than were they at home. And uh, a part of the reason is, as Jesus said, when you're at home, people just think they know you. They don't think you're anything special. But when you've gone somewhere else, when you've traveled in order to minister to someone else, it makes an impression on them. They appreciate it. And so he said uh, the Galileans received him. Now, these weren't the people he grew up with. And yet he spent most of his ministry, interestingly, in Galilee because of the fact that that back home where he did all the miracles, nobody was impressed. The Galileans who had been down there and seen the miracles, they were happy to see him. And so they had been at the feast that we read about back in chapter two, seen the miracles that Jesus was doing, and they just welcomed him with open arms. And I think it's important to find out where you're welcomed and to go there, to find out where it is that that there's really a move of the Spirit and be Involved in that way. Now Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe he kind of was calling see already Jesus had started to do miracles and he got a lot of attention for doing the miracles but he was feeling like I don't know if people are really understanding who I am and why I came and what I am all about they just seem to I feel like I'm playing to an audience and so as he says to this guy you just want more miracles right And the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He goes, hey, I don't care about tricks. My kid's going to die if you don't do something. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. That's some pretty amazing faith that Jesus just said, look, your son's fine. And he goes, all right. Now, How many times does God tell us we're going to be fine? How many times does he promise us that he's going to provide for us? When we read his promise, do we walk away going, oh, thank God, praise the Lord? Or do we have the attitude, well, I know God's promise, but man, this one looks tough. And so I think I'll wait until it really happens before I praise the Lord and before I thank him. And so this guy with his faith just presumed Jesus wouldn't lie to him. And uh, he took off. And as he went and was going down, his, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. When did he get better? And they said, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Just at the time the father knew at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when when uh, he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, it says that he said great when Jesus said he's well. He believed and he headed home. But now as he experienced the word from the servants that said, hey, right at the time when Jesus said this, your son was healed. Now he believed in a way that was much deeper. It's one thing to believe who Jesus is, to acknowledge what he's done but it's another thing to commit yourself to him. And I think that's what the nobleman did at this point, because it says he believed in his whole household did. He said, things are going to be different. Everything's changed. Jesus was able to just speak the word and my son was healed. And so now my commitment of my life is going to be to him. And we all have to get past that initial um, sense of, yeah, I believe who Jesus is. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe that he can do miracles. Sometimes Jesus will do something incredible for us and we'll go, wow, he's really good. But we have to get past that to a point where we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are committed completely to him. Chapter five, we begin with the story of the man who was there at the pool of Bethesda back in Jerusalem they headed down because there was a feast and remember for the major feast everyone who was able to would come from all over Israel and come down to Jerusalem and so Jesus went down to Jerusalem and there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate was a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda and it had five porches so there's this pool and all of a a great multitude of sick people blind lame paralyzed were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So apparently at that time in Bethesda, in that pool, there was, a, there was this pool of water, and, and periodically an angel would come and stir the water up, would touch the water, and when you saw the water moving, the first guy in the water would be healed. Um there's been a lot of discussion about this and and um, you know theologians differ as to whether well was it really an angel or was this just that the person had so much faith that their faith would heal them it says an angel did it and so I just take it literally and believe that that's what happened why would God do such a thing just just having like a lottery sort of a deal where if you get in fast enough you'd be healed I don't know but I'm not going to complain about it. You know, people would go, man, why didn't the angel come 10 times a day and heal all these people? I don't know. Why doesn't God heal everyone? He has purposes in allowing some of us to endure um, trials and tribulations and testings. And other times he sees fit to touch us and heal us. But I know he comes to heal everyone spiritually, and that's the important thing. Why ever God did it this way, it was fair because he did it, and he can do whatever he wants. But there was a guy who had been sick for 38 years, no doubt laying out by the pool for a lot of that time. We don't know what his infirmity was, but it's a possibility that it was a result of some immoral conduct on his part because of a comment that Jesus makes to him later. But we're not sure of that. 38 years he had had this infirmity. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be made well? I mean, you could go, that's kind of a dumb question. I'm sitting here at this magic pool. I'm waiting. I'm trying to hustle. Every time I'm dragging myself over to the pool, somebody else goes in first. Do I want to be well? But Jesus was more interested in just whether or not this guy wanted to be healed. And later he makes it clear that what he wanted to do was free him up from a life of sin. What he wanted to do was clean him up completely, and his physical healing would only be a a picture of that, really, just a small part of what he wanted to do. But the question is, do you want to be well? And again, we might look at that and say, what a dumb question. Everyone wants to be well. I don't know. Do we? I think this is a pretty heavy question that God probably wants to ask many of us at different times. See, there are a lot of sicknesses that we have that happened because of us. There are a lot of conditions that we have that there would be things that we could do and our condition would greatly improve. And Jesus might sometimes look at us and say, do you really want to be well? It might be something as simple as eating, right, or getting enough exercise. It might be something that, that touches us in the area of our lives where we need to spend more time with him or we need to cry out in prayer some more or we need to believe Him or trust Him. But I think with whatever is wrong in our lives, you know, maybe it's a relationship problem that would just take some, an investment of time or a gift or something like that and, and a, a phone call to someone that could restore a relationship. And so we're all sick. We all have problems and issues and pains and difficulties, and I think that it's good for us to hear the voice of Jesus saying to us, you really want to be well? It's, a, it's, a, it's an honest question. It's a legitimate concern, and it's something that I think we need to think good and hard on about every condition in our lives that's less than ideal. The man responded and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. He, he's kind of saying, Well, if you want to help me, hang around for a few days, and when the water moves, toss me in throw me in there, boom, I'll belly flop and get healed. So if you want to help, why don't you help me? But see, Jesus could help him in a way that was much easier than that. And often we try to dictate to God how we think he ought to help us. When the truth is, he may want to help us in a much more miraculous way. I think it's typical of the way we are also that we believe that there's some other person who can help us. That if other people would cooperate and we could be okay, we'd be well. If he wasn't the way he is, if she wasn't the way she was, if I had a better job, if I had more money, if my parents hadn't done this to me, if my friends hadn't deserted me, if this person would give me some attention, then I could get well. But if you're looking to anyone to make you well, you're skipping the obvious, that God is here, he is with you, and he doesn't need to do it your way he can just say the word and if you have faith in him he can touch you and he can fix what's wrong with you and that's an important truth as long as we are looking for a friend to drag us to the pool as long as we think that somebody counseling us or giving us some money or being nice to us or marrying us or leaving us or whatever it would be as long as we think our happiness And our wellness depends on someone else. If they would only change, then we've missed the obvious. We're standing there telling God, God, if only these people would do something for me, then I'd be okay. But Jesus just said, get up and take your bed and walk. That had never occurred to him before. And yet it says immediately the man was made well. And he took up his bed and walked. And it was on the Sabbath day. He just obeyed God. Now, if you have a problem, if God speaks to you and says, look, I want you to live above the level of that, maybe it means standing up and walking. Maybe it means getting out there and doing something. Maybe it means changing something about your life. If God's speaking to you, then by all means, do it. And you're not going to know if he's speaking to you unless you listen to him, unless you hang out with him. We need to obey God when he tells us to do something. And Jesus made the command and the guy did it. If the guy had just said, right, I can't get up and walk. If he hadn't had that faith to be obedient to God, he would have still ended up lying by that pool, no doubt. But when God spoke to him, he moved. I think once in a while it's good for us to try something that's impossible I think once in a while it's good for us to, if we're not sure, to just say, you know what, I'm going to step out in faith. If, you're, if you can't walk, and every once in a while you try to get up and walk, what's it hurt? It's, you know, you're still, you're there, you still can't walk, but by trying you might find out that God's been speaking to you. You might find out that by your faith God does a wonderful work. I have a friend Jeff Pfeiffer, who goes to Calvary Costa Mesa, who's quadriplegic. And he he was born, when he was born, his umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. And so he has very little control of his hands, very little control of his feet. His speech is difficult. People are coming up to him a lot and telling him, if you had enough faith, just get up and walk. And when they do that, he doesn't do it right then. He's, He's tried that. But every once in a while, he will push himself up and try to wedge himself just to see. And he stretches himself, and he does things that people think wouldn't be a good idea. I'll never forget the day when, when I asked Jeff, is there anything that you've missed in life that you would like to have done, but because of your disability you couldn't do? And he said, I've never ridden a motorcycle. And so I go, hey, we can fix that. So we took him out back behind the church, and lifted him up, hoisted him onto the back of a motorcycle, strapped him on with those ratcheting tie-downs, put a helmet on his head, and, and took off. And he was loving it. He was yelling and screaming and just having a great time. And, but after he, one thing, we forgot to tie his head back, so his face kept smashing the back of the helmet that was in front of him. So when he came back, his whole face was bloody. But he was so happy. He was just like, this was great. And Romaine came out and he was just really mad. And he was screaming at me and he's going, What do you think you're doing? This is crazy. You're... And I said, What do you think's going to happen to him? You think he's going to get crippled if we crash? <laughs> and that just made Romaine mad or it didn't help. But I, I admire someone who stretches themselves. Jeff, for his birthday this year, went skydiving. He just does things, even though they look impossible. You just never know. God may give you experiences that you haven't had. I'm going down in December (coughs) because Jeff is testing for his black belt in karate. Now, you might think, oh, come on. How dangerous is he? Well, he's hurt me a few times. We've taught him to use his chair as a weapon. It's an electric chair. But not only that, it's amazing the control that he's developed for blocks and kicks and strikes, and he's hurt me seriously more than once. And here he is, he, he finally got to the point where we couldn't make up any more techniques for him, so we made him memorize everyone else's techniques, and the way he tests is other people perform techniques, and he says whether they're doing it right or wrong, and, and communicates to you how they're doing it wrong. Now, no one ever thought of a guy like Jeff being a, taking karate, but he came to the class and Ken Kellogg, the guy who was teaching the class, said that he goes, sure, line up there and do it. And Jeff was trying to do the moves. And all of a sudden, Ken had told the class, get down and do push. give me 20 push-ups. And he wasn't looking, and he hears this crash. And Jeff had unbelted himself from his chair and is laying on the floor grunting and trying to do a push-up. And Ken at that point said, you know, I'm going to work with this guy. And he, he talked to me about it, and we kicked a lot of ideas around. And Jeff's been doing it for several years ever since then. And it's impressive. The TV news came out and took a picture of him when we tested him for, I think, his orange belt or something and did a really nice story on it. And, but Jeff was the kind of guy who had the faith and still does to do things that people think he can't do. And you'd be surprised how many times if you take yourself out of your area of comfort and you try something that's impossible, you'd be surprised how many times your faith comes through, God delivers and does something for you that you wouldn't have thought possible. It's important for us to stretch ourselves. In fact, I would say that in the last month, if you haven't tried something that's impossible, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. You're probably not opening yourself up to the work of faith that God wants to do in your life, to the miracles that he wants to accomplish. Stop being so safe and be willing to try things because God tells you to try them. Well, it was the Sabbath, and so the Jews came to him and said, it's the Sabbath. You can't be carrying your bed on the Sabbath. And he goes, yeah, I know, but the guy that told me to take up my bed and walk, he he healed me. What could I do? The guy says walk and I could walk. I haven't walked in 38 years. And so he told me to take my bed too. So I just did what he said. The one who was healed didn't even know who it was. They said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? He didn't even know. Jesus had left a multitude being in that place. Isn't that funny? Man, if I ever pulled off a miracle like that, I'd be putting out a press conference. I'd be gathering, look at what happened here. Now, it can happen to you too. But Jesus is like, oh, cool. And he takes off and doesn't even introduce himself. This is the kind of subversive evangelism that we see so characteristic of those in the Bible. Not just simple in your face, here are the steps, Do you want to cash it in right now or don't you? Not pushing someone to a decision. It's realizing that it takes people time to get to the point where most of us weren't saved because somebody came up and hit us with some propositional truth and we agreed to it. It took for many of us years for God to do it. And so often we see Jesus and Paul and others in the Bible just like tossing something out there and leaving. Jesus, to the rich young ruler, he cared deeply about him, but he told him, go sell everything that you have. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him, but he let him walk away. Sometimes we just have to realize God isn't just going to work in a neat little package the way we want him to. We need to listen to him when he tells us to speak up, and we need to listen to him when he tells us that's enough for now. Back off. And that's what Jesus did. didn't even leave a business card, just took off. The guy's going, I don't even know who he was. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. They ran into each other again. And Jesus said, hey, by the way, here's another piece of information. You've been made well, but stop sinning lest a worse thing come upon you. This is why we get the idea that perhaps he was sick because of some sort of an STD or something, something that he had done wrong that brought this condition on himself because Jesus is going, just understand this. You've been delivered. And if you believe in me, you've been saved. But things need to change in your life or it's going to get a lot worse. And how often I've seen this happen to people, God delivers them. And if they return back to that old sin that they used to commit, sometimes it's way worse when they go back to it. I had a friend who had a real serious heroin habit, and God delivered him miraculously, no withdrawals or anything. He was just delivered. And he was clean for probably a year and a half, was singing in the worship community at Calvary and involved in the singles fellowship and just doing great, going out sharing his faith with people. But he he got a little depressed, and one night he just decided he went to a motel and he decided to do some heroin. Hadn't done it in a year and a half, but he took a dose of heroin that was a lot more intense than what his body could handle because he used to be able to handle it, but staying away from it, you realize, ooh, I can't take what I used to And it killed him. He died right there in the hotel. He's a guy who I know loved the Lord deeply. God had changed him miraculously. But we always need to be careful. Don't ever believe that you've come so far that you're kind of safe now. Maybe there's a sin that you haven't committed in 30 years. Keep your guard up anyway don't be so foolish as to think you can flirt around with it. I've known a lot of alcoholics who are delivered from alcohol and spend many years. And one of them who goes to our church, Bob Lang, has, has been clean for over 20 years. And I've asked him, Bob, do you think that if you had one drink, it would just finish you off? You'd go back into being a drunk? And he said, honestly, I'm not sure, but I don't take that chance. I'll never have a drink again. And that's wise to just realize, you know what? I don't ever want to go back where I was because if I do, it might go back worse than it was before. And that's what Jesus is sharing with this guy. The man departed and told the Jews, by the way, it was Jesus. I got his name for you. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He had healed the guy on the Sabbath, so they wanted to kill him. Their rules rules much more important than even what was good for people. Jesus in another place said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Whenever we apply the law in a way that does not fulfill the purpose of the law, whenever we decide to follow the rules instead of looking at a common sense approach as to what makes sense, what goes with the spirit of what God would reveal to us, then we're venturing into an area that can lead us really astray. There's something about the law that just makes us want to make more laws. The Constitution of the United States, a short document. But now you walk into a law library and you look at walls and walls and walls of books that are all trying to explain the Constitution, basically, interpreting it. You have all of these different levels of courts that are trying to interpret that which is the law. And everyone, our tendency is to find loopholes in the law. And so constantly legislators have to be on the lookout for loopholes so that they can fix the loopholes. It's just the way things are. If we begin to live our lives in a legalistic way, if we begin to live our lives by rules instead of by spirit, then ultimately we'll end up with lots of rules and we'll still break them. It just works out that way. So the Jews were in love with rules, so they were hating Jesus. And Jesus said to them, verse 17, my father has been working until now and I have been working. He's going, you're bugged at me, but I'm telling you, my father's the one who's doing it and I'm doing it too. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. There are so many people today, and a lot of cults, who would tell you that Jesus can't be God because he's the Son of God. Well, the truth is, if he's the Son of God, he has to be God. When we have babies, our babies are people. When God has a son, and again, it's only in a metaphorical sense anyway, but if someone is the Son of God, he is made of the same essence with God. Paul explains this in great detail in the book of Colossians. It says that He is the express image of His person, that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in a bodily form. John, back in John chapter 1, we saw that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now all of those people who deny the deity of Christ today, which ultimately includes the Jehovah's Witnesses who say He is a God They also say that he's Michael the archangel. The Mormon church who says that he's a spirit brother to Lucifer, and since Lucifer is an angel, that would make Jesus an angel too, and thus a created being. And everyone else who denies the deity of Jesus Christ can't see the obvious. These Jewish scholars who hated Jesus, who wanted to kill Jesus, they knew clearly he's claiming to be God. They wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God, without question. Hey, if Jesus wasn't equal with God, if he wasn't God, right now he could have saved his life by just going, or at any point along the line, including when he was going on trial. All he had to do is say, you guys have the wrong idea. I'm not God. I'm just a creation of God. I'm his best creation, but I'm a creation. Then the controversy would have been over. The reason why Jesus was in hot water now in the early part of his ministry and throughout his ministry is that time and time again, he made it clear, I am, I'm God. And it was undeniable, and the Jewish leaders could see it. He's making himself equal with God. Then Jesus began to talk to them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does. The son also does in like manner. In other words we are interdependent the father and the son i can't do something on my own because in him see was all the fullness of the godhead in a bodily form for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does there's that intimacy and he will show him greater works than he'll show him greater works than these that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them even so the son gives life to whom he will For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So he says the Father and the Son are working together. We don't do anything independently of each other. Do I understand the Trinity? That there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are all completely God? They're distinct but not separate? that they aren't just one God who acts as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, but they are three entities? I don't understand it. But it's been taught from the beginning. It goes all the way back to in Genesis where the, the word used for God is Elohim. It's a plural noun. El would be one God. Elah would be the dual or two gods and Elohim, plural, three or more. And yet it says the Lord is one. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God our Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. So there's one God, although his descriptive word is a plural noun. And to make matters even more complicated, the word. And the Jews, by the way, when they're going through that Shema in Deuteronomy 6, as any Orthodox Jew does every day, they now, when they quote the Shema, they say, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, 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 one. They, they repeat that word, echad. Because they want to rub it in that the Trinity couldn't be the case. He's one, 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 one. And yet that word echad that they say over and over again, it's a compound unity. It's the same word that's used in Genesis when God made Adam and Eve, and he said the two will become one echad, flesh. So the mystery's always been there. The, in, we saw in, in the book of Hebrews, he, he talks about the Lord said unto my Lord... How could God call his son God unless he's also God? And over and over again throughout the scriptures taught very clearly Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God. Here we get some insights because (coughs) some of the things that they do, they do together. All that they do is in cohort, and yet there are certain roles that each member distinctly has. And interestingly, the role of judgment is left to the son. The father doesn't judge anyone it's the son who judges now if you go back through the Old Testament and you'll see how many times when the judgment of God was coming it was the angel of the Lord who showed up to pronounce or to 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 carry out that judgment it was the angel of the Lord on the night of Passover that moved through the camp it was the angel of the Lord that came to Abram and then to Lot and said we gotta get you out of here the angel of the Lord over and over again I believe that the angel of the Lord is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, why is it that Jesus is the only one who judges? The Father and the Holy Spirit can't judge. The Holy Spirit can convict, but he doesn't judge. Judgment is always left to the Son, the second member of the Trinity. Why? Because he's the one who would be tested. He's the one who would become one of us in the legal system, we always emphasize that you're entitled to a jury of your peers. You're entitled for your case to be heard by those who are from among your peer group. Why? Because the idea is there's going to be some sympathy and empathy there. There's going to be someone who understands the mindset of the person who's being accused of a crime. The book of Hebrews almost the whole point of the book over and over and over again in that book is that Jesus Christ, our high priest, has been tempted in everything that we are, that he has been there, and he entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf and says, hey, come on in. He forever liveth to make intercession for us. He's sticking up for us at the right hand of God right now. And so God the Father says... Jesus, you're the one who came down and you took judgment on yourself. you're the one who paid the price for all of that sin, the sins of the world placed on your shoulders, and as a result, you're the one who's going to judge. You demonstrated your love in that while these people were sinners, you died for them. For the joy that was set before him before you, you endured the cross. And so you're the one who will judge because You understand. It's an incredible thing. It's a wonderful thing that God says the Son is the one who's going to judge. You tell him it's not fair, look at him hanging there on the cross and tell me about fair. It's also a reminder to us, the Bible says many times, don't judge. Don't be a judge. Don't be someone who condemns other people. There are people who need to be judged, no doubt. And most of us, myself included, I'm usually willing to chip in if judgment's needed. I'll tell you what ought to happen, what needs to be done. Boy, I know what's right, and I have some great ideas as to how to carry it out. Put me in charge, I say. But Jesus says, "No, I'm the one who judges. Our job isn't to judge anyone. Our job job is to love them." That's what Jesus said what he said to in the end of the Gospel of John to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. He basically says, I'll judge them. You love them. You take care of them. You be good to them. And that's God's word to us. Be careful. If you put yourself in the place of a judge, and basically how you'll know this is when you look at someone who's failed and you're looking down on them wanting them to be punished when he looks at someone who's failed he looks on them wanting to save them wanting to lift them up in fact wanting to show grace to them before they ever even admit what they've done it's the goodness the kindness of God that brings us to repentance ultimately they'll be judged no doubt about it some of them in this life and all of them in the age to come but Jesus says in the meantime your job is to love them. And when I start getting disgusted by what other people do, and when I start looking down on them and crying out for, for, for justice to flow, for consequences to be delivered, then I'm showing that I'm trying to take the place of the only one who deserves to judge. I can't judge. And if I judge you for being judgmental, I'm judging. See, I can't look at people who who have blown it and said, don't judge them. If you judge them, I judge you. It's like what we have to do instead is say, that's all up to Jesus. He's the one who judges and he will and he'll judge fairly and everyone's going to stand before him. But our job isn't to judge. Even the father says, I'm not going to judge. Jesus says, no, the father doesn't do it. He hasn't been there. The father doesn't know experientially what it's like to be tempted. Ever. but I do and so I'm the one who ultimately will carry out justice good reminder for us of course they're so identified that he says all should honor the son just as they honor the father he who doesn't honor the son doesn't honor the father who sent him so we're not to hold one above another if you aren't honoring Jesus you're not honoring God period you may say that you believe in the great God up there, the big man upstairs. You may think that, you know, I like God. I'm just not sure which God, and I'm not sure whether Jesus is the one. Jesus says, no, if you dishonor me, you're dishonoring the Father. Most assuredly, verse 24, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. So all you have to do is believe in me, believe that I am who I say I am, And you won't have to worry about judgment because I'm the judge and I'm your defense attorney. I'm the one who's going to stick up for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. An interesting reference probably refers at least several different senses. Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead, for instance. Lazarus, come forth, and he came out. There are those also who at the time when Jesus said it is finished and he died on the cross, there are those who came out of the graves at that point. There are also those who were believers in the Old Testament who were there in Abraham's bosom in Hades and, and Jesus went down there after dying and, and as he entered and proclaimed their freedom, he led Forth captivity captives and took them into the presence of the Father, taking them from the place of of the grave into the place of, of eternity. But not only that, in every one of our lives, Paul said, but you hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so each of us who's given our life to Jesus Christ is a testimony of someone who was dead. And we heard the voice of the Lord and we came to life. In the future, if we die, he'll raise us instantly, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Or if we make it until the rapture, if, if Jesus comes to snatch us up, here we are on this planet. We're in the process of dying. Our bodies are wearing out. And he snatches us up and gives us a new body and makes us alive. And so most assuredly, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to have life in himself it's the same life and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man notice the son of man was a term that referred to god in the old testament or at least to the messiah There were plenty of indications that the Messiah would be God, but the Messiah was also called the Son of Man. And that's the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, again, Jesus is saying, the reason why is because I'm the Son of Man. I'm a human. I've been here. I know what it's like. And then he says, don't marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. So not only those who are righteous, but even the wicked... They're going to be brought up to life again, taken out of the grave, united to face judgment. Some, those who have done good, those who have done the right thing to the resurrection of life and those who have rejected him, done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And then again, to make it clear, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. It's not like the Father and Jesus are two opposites. Jesus is the good cop and the Father is the bad cop. He's going, no, it all, it's His will. This is, I'm doing what what I'm called to do. I'm doing what's right. But He is intimately involved in this whole process. I don't do it alone. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So, In other words, he's saying, you shouldn't just believe me because I say it. Anyone can say the things that I'm saying. But there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You've sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So he says, how do you explain the fact that John the Baptist says, this is who I am? Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. I'm not trying to be somebody. I'm trying to save you. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Hey, John began to shine forth the light. And John said, remember in John chapter 1, he wasn't the light. He was sent to bear witness of the light, but he said, at first you guys liked him. You liked what he had to say. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. It says, not only did John the Baptist testify of me, I'm doing things that you can't explain in any other way. The miracles that you see me perform, the healings, all of the wonderful works that I do, they testify of the fact that God's on my side, that the Father is behind me attesting to who I am. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form but you do not not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. So he says, John the Baptist testified. The miracles themselves testify. And he said, also the Father has been telling you all along who I am and what I was doing. If you were reading the Bible, if you really looked at what it is that you study all the time, you'd realize, he says, It was all aiming toward me. It was was all about me. It was God the Father's testimony of me as his son. But you don't get it because his word doesn't abide in you. It doesn't stay there. It goes in one ear and out the other. You file it away in your brain, but you don't let it filter down into your heart. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life you study the Bible and you think somehow it's gonna help you to have a better life but you don't understand they're all about me and if you'd find me you'd find life I came that you'd have life Jesus said and that you'd have it more abundantly the irony of those who search the scriptures and still don't get it I've known people who had memorized vast amounts of scripture, and yet they still choose to live their life in a legalistic and judgmental, negative sort of way. I know this one guy who goes around and he protests against almost everything Christian, knows the Bible really well. I've sat with him and had conversations with him and appealed to him and and said, do you really think this is what is ministering? Do you think you're, you're... somehow gaining people. And what he does is he's just out there condemning everyone. You'll see him picketing the Harvest Crusade. You'll see him picketing the Billy Graham Crusade. Wherever he's out there, he's, he knows what he's against. He knows the word of God, and yet in his life, you don't sense any love or compassion. He, he once told me, he said, how come when we're out picketing the gay pr- pride parades and stuff, you're not out there with me? And I said, frankly, I don't want to be associated with you because I want people to see the love of God. And what I see from you is all this God hates fags and all this stuff. And I I said, I don't think that's the way God wants to be represented. And I know that's not the way I want to be represented. And his response to me was, well, I figure all you Calvary Chapel guys have the love and grace covered. Somebody has to talk about judgment. What a sad perspective. The guy a few years ago got himself into some moral problems and and was disappeared for several years popped back as self-righteous as ever but there's disappointment and there's a lack of joy and peace and, and love and fulfillment in the life that's set out to be lived and saying I'm the one and you're not I'm special I'm righteous and you're not oh search the scriptures but if you don't find me in other words if your heart doesn't seem like my heart doesn't matter how much of the scriptures you know memorize all the verses you want to memorize but if you have love Paul would say in first Corinthians you're nothing you're a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal you're completely without profit without love and so searching the scriptures learning the stuff and not having the love it just makes you a good arguer it makes you someone who loves to pick fights But can people see Jesus in you? Not a chance. What a bold statement, though, for Jesus to say, you search the scriptures. You do. But in them you think you have eternal life, and they're testifying of me. Imagine a guy coming on the scene and saying, these scriptures that you've been studying, that your ancestors have studied for hundreds of years, they're all about me. The same basic statement is made over in the Psalms and then it's quoted in the book of Hebrews when it's credited to Jesus as saying, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. It's all about me, Jesus said. After Jesus rose from the dead as he was talking to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and then went to their house with them. It says that he opened the Scriptures, and and from Moses, from Genesis, all the way through the prophets, the Old Testament, he showed everything about himself that was in there. If you have this book and you don't see Jesus, you miss the point. This book is about him. Searching the Scriptures and not finding him will leave you empty. Verse 41, I don't receive honor from men... But I know you, that you don't have the love of God in you. I, I can check you out, and I can tell what you're like. I don't need to follow you around to see. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You'll sucker for all sorts of other alternatives, but I'm coming in the name of God, and, and, and you won't receive me. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and don't seek the honor that comes from the only God. Notice, the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's already talked about the fact that the Father testified concerning him that his works testify concerning him, that John the Baptist testified concerning him. And now he says, by the way, Moses, the one who's your hero, the one who, hey, you say, yeah, Moses, he's our father. We, we just love the law that came from Moses. He said, Moses talks about me all the time, and you don't get it. You won't even accept his testimony. You won't. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. Now, where did Moses write about Jesus? All throughout the Pentateuch. Those five books are full of references to Jesus Christ. It started right in the beginning when it was Elohim who was creating the heavens and the earth, when God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image. Jesus right there. Jesus later is after the fall when God speaking to um, Eve. And talking about the fact that, actually speaking to the serpent about Eve and saying, there's going to come a seed from woman that's going to smash your head. You'll crush his heel, but he'll smash your head. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 16. As, As God lays that out, who is he talking about? The seed of a woman? A woman doesn't have seed. A woman just has an egg. The man provides the seed, except in the case of the Incarnation when the Holy Spirit came on Mary and planted within her God. And yet, as she, as he became a part of her, as he became a part of her body, he was the seed of woman, the only one ever. Because he didn't have an earthly father, every other person to be born other than Adam and Eve and Jesus. All had a father and mother. That's the way it happens. But what was that about Genesis 3 well it was about Jesus and on and on we see the angel of the Lord showing up wrestling with Jacob doing so many things and and Jesus is going you don't get it man Moses wrote about me a lot and if you believed him you'd believe me but if you don't believe his writings how are you going to believe my words you didn't believe what the Bible said all of it that you have read I'm probably wasting my time talking to you further, he's basically saying. I, you're not going to believe me. This is one reason why after... And, and, you know, you would think, you'd look at it logically and say, these guys who love Judaism, these guys who love the law, who were looking forward to the Messiah, you'd think when they met Jesus, they would just go, wow. But they didn't. And very few of these There were some exceptions, certainly. Nicodemus perhaps being one. But for the most part, the people who knew the most and who had the greatest opportunity, they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus Christ. It boggles the imagination. But we don't learn about him through head knowledge. If we did, then those of us who were dragged to Sunday school our whole lives would just automatically walk with him in spirit and in truth. But the truth is, when we're dragged to church, hey, seeds are planted, but at some point we have to meet him for ourselves. We have to come to a personal knowledge of him. There are no second generation Christians. And sad to say, these Jews who had been waiting for Jesus didn't recognize him when he showed up, couldn't accept him when he was there. And To this day, the Jewish people, the Bible tells us, there's a sense in which there's a blinding on their eyes. Now, it's not exclusive because I know a lot of Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah who have become Christians. But on the whole, as a nation, as a people, they still don't get it. And I'm amazed as they read Isaiah 53 that they don't fall on their knees and say, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you took my sins on yourself. I'm like a sheep, I've gone astray, you took my iniquity on you. Why don't they get it? Well, it's just not something that is perceived in an intellectual way. It's not about having the right information, although you can't get saved without information. But you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God either. If you could, Jesus would have and his testimony ultimately with these people after giving them this incredible teaching his testimony was you guys just aren't going to get it so it's foolish for us to beat our heads against the wall getting involved in arguments for hours and hours trying to convince someone to be a Christian you're either going to accept him because the Holy Spirit's working in your heart and you make that choice and you receive him or you're not and all of the reasoning in the world and all of the argumentation and the arm-twisting in the world isn't going to happen. See, most of us, again, we, don't, we didn't become a Christian because someone argued us into the kingdom of God. I grew up, my whole life, I knew, I knew more about the Bible and about theology and about Christianity when I, before I was a Christian than almost anyone I know today knows after they have been a Christian. And it was all in there and it didn't make me a Christian. Now, I'm in favor of good teaching because after I became a Christian, those things became tremendous assets to me, but they were liabilities before because all I did was argue about it. But I didn't come to Jesus because I finally put two and two together. I came to him because at some point he just touched my life. And I would credit more those few people who reached out to me in love for drawing me to the Lord and then god just revealing himself personally to me much more than all the arguments that i heard up until that point that wasn't it at all if anything those that knowledge sometimes seemed almost as an impediment but the reality of who jesus is is something that just requires you to open your heart and believe in him and when you believe you'll believe more and when you crack the door he'll come flooding through But I'm happy to know, as I often find myself in a position of sharing the gospel with people, of of trying to show people what Jesus has done for them, it's so hard for me to let go. Because I can't believe anyone would reject such a thing. And so I hang on, and I want to argue, and I want to debate. And God would just say, how about just loving and backing off a bit here? Don't just go for notches in your belt. Don't just... so often we treat evangelism like it's selling cars and you just have to come in and and be a good closer the reason why most people who pray to accept the Lord in evangelistic efforts end up not walking with the Lord is because we're so good at closing that we don't let the Spirit do His work and so now the worst thing is, the worst thing in the world is if I overpower someone and convince them to pray a prayer And it's not really a work of the Spirit in their life. I've done them a great disservice. Oh, I walk away and say, yep, I led five people to the Lord this week. And then those people walk away thinking that they have all there is to a walk with God. And maybe they weren't just quite there yet. And I tricked them into it by asking them if they want to go to hell or not. And really what it was is God wanted to work in their lives in a little different way. But now for the rest of their lives, they're not open to the gospel because they already tried that and it didn't work. It's so important for us not to just slam the message home. Jesus didn't, and if anyone was entitled to it, it was him. But to realize this is a work of the Spirit in the life of a person I'll share with you, and it's up to you. Frankly, if somebody doesn't want to get saved enough to ask how to do it, they're probably not going to do it really from the heart if you have to say don't you want to do it now well i don't know maybe oh come on man now is the accepted time now is it come on tell a few deathbed stories and do you know you could drive out here tonight and your car will flip over and you'll be dead flames and by that time it'll be too late you've got to do it now okay well tomorrow how deep is that commitment really going to be It'll be, it'll be weaker than a New Year's resolution because you're going to go join a, a gym and start working out. The kind of a commitment that changes lives is, is the commitment that, that decides and understands. And as the Spirit works in our lives, it says, you need a new life. And if you won't even look for it, if you're too lazy to ask how to get it, you're probably not going to stick with it anyway. So rather than humor ourselves with, you know, coming in with assumed closes and tricky lines. so much more important for us to realize that our message, like Jesus said, is here's who Jesus is. You don't want it? Okay, it's all right. He'll still be there. It's still true. But if you don't get it, I can't make you get it. Jesus couldn't, and there's no way that we can. It's just the way it is. Um, I wish that I could decide to save people I wish I could come up with such a clever approach that they just couldn't help but get saved. But Jesus couldn't do that. Paul couldn't do it. Nothing clever, nothing forced, nothing organized, no plan. It's a work of the Spirit. What we can do is live that life, is love with his love, is not judge but reach out and care. I'd venture to say that, you know, and it's just such a blessing to have Jean and Julie Rivera with us home from Cambodia for a while. And they're over there building orphanages and, run, and doing schools. Now, if instead we just went and had a big evangelistic crusade, took a bunch of people over there, waved some tracks in front of them, said, How many people want to accept Jesus? Woo, they'd all raise their hands. But that's a lot different than a little kid who. Someone takes them and loves them and feeds them and clothes them and and teaches them about Jesus and takes the time to raise them up and to train them in in vocations and things like that. It's that kind of work that changes people for eternity. And you know it. Think about it. How did God really change your life? It wasn't just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It was over a period of time from a lot of different directions, God revealing himself to you. And that's our job, to share his love. And he'll do that work. But people's lives will be changed for eternity. They won't just be argued into the kingdom. What I'm impressed by, and I, you know, I've said this before, but I like it when people come up after church and say, you know, what you said tonight just changed my life. It's nice to hear sometimes. But I'll tell you the truth. It, it doesn't mean a lot. Because I've heard that kind of stuff from a lot of people whose lives really didn't change all that much over time. What blesses me, and I've had a couple people do this who've heard me say this. I had one guy one time, I was at another church speaking, and I think it was at Calvary South Bay, and a guy said, you know, I heard you say five years ago, don't tell me that God changed my life through your teaching tonight. Come and tell me in five years what's changed over the last five years and he said it's been five years just over five years and I want to tell you I accepted the Lord when you were teaching here one time and God's changed my life and let me tell you what he's done and how he's done it and that's what I love lasting change I'm not interested in any kind of temporary results I'm interested in eternal results and that should be all of our focus and the truth is that's a much dirtier work than just Mass evangelism. It's sticky. It's ugly. And the truth is most of the people that you pour your life into aren't going to change. Most of the people that Jesus poured his life into didn't change. But that's okay. They had the opportunity. They knew the reality when they saw it. The choice was theirs. Adam and Eve lived in the garden with God, a perfect environment, walking in the cool of the day with him. And they chose to reject him. What makes you think that you can create an environment that's going to be better than that? So our job is to point people to Him, to let them know what He is like, to be, in a sense, incarnated representatives of Him, to live our lives in such a way that our very life, our very love, our faithfulness, our goodness, it it touches them. Jesus said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven see your good works, that they would look at you and go, why are you doing this good stuff? Why are you caring about me? Why are you willing to help me? That's what changes lives. Ultimately, that's what changed everyone who finally saw Jesus for who he was. But most people won't get it. Most of the people who called themselves his disciples didn't get it. That's okay. It's Jesus. It's about him. It's, it's looking unto Jesus. And that was his message. Here's who I am. Take it or leave it. The most valuable resource that you have, that you were created with, that you had even before you were a Christian, is that power of choice. Is that ability that you have that you can either do this or this, and your destiny, both in life and eternity, will be determined by the choices that you make. Your life will become what you make it. Your future, your eternity will become what you make it based on the choice that you make. And God honors you and and respects you so much that he hands you that kind of a responsible opportunity and then he backs up and says, okay, there you go. What are you going to choose? I'm convinced that probably all of us in this room, certainly most of us have already made that choice and that's a good thing. If you haven't, tonight would be a great time to do it. Or tomorrow. If you're alive tomorrow. (laughs) But he's not going to quit on you. He's not going to pressure you. He's not going to beg you. He's not going to force you. Don't worry. He's not just going to put you into a desperate situation so that you have no way out. Nah, he shares who he is and he backs up and says, it's your choice. I'm thankful for the choice that I made, but I'm also thankful for the fact that I did it by choice. Oh, sometimes it feels like you had no choice, but I did. I could have said no. So could you. The fact is, every day we still have that incredible privilege of choice, and I'll decide tonight what I do that's going to affect tomorrow, and what I decide to do tomorrow, and how I decide to respond to what happens to me tomorrow, Is going to affect what happens down the road it's a it's a partnership with God a glorious partnership where he says I didn't I'm not taking your choice away now that you're saved this is still a great opportunity for you and for me and that's what he gives us and we grow to appreciate that and when we get to heaven and we look back we'll appreciate it so much more Not only because of what we're able to do, but because of those things that we don't do and the ways in which we lose out because we come short. But it's a choice. Our destiny is, in a sense, in our hands because what we do with Jesus affects everything else. Let's pray. Lord, We're so grateful that you sent your son incarnate in the flesh. The powerful wisdom that he communicated, the overwhelming love and wisdom that he embodied and still does. And you allowed us to be judged on him. And we thank you. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be those that people can see you when they look at us. That as we become more like Jesus, then more and more it would be the case if you've seen us, you've seen the Father. So give us your heart. Work within us to cause us more and more to resemble you to reflect you, and to love you. Lord, if there are people in this room today who are in the valley of decision, maybe never having dedicated their lives completely to you, or maybe facing a future that's going to be determined based on the choices that they're wrestling with right now, the decisions that they will be making over the next days and weeks. Lord, we're amazed that you trust us with this kind of responsibility, but we do have the ability to respond and and we want to make the right choices. So help us to follow our leader, to do what you would have us to do, to listen to your voice and, and to respond to it. To not be as those who search the scriptures and miss the Savior. But that as we study, we would hear your voice personally and intimately. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. That's all.